you want to open us up? Yeah. Welcome to the Retic Lounge, guys. We have a great one in store for you today. Um, what is this? Episode 68, Lucas, or 67? 68. Close to Six my favorite number. Oh, 69. We got to run a special or something. Uh, but anyways, uh, we are talking with none other than the scrub daddy, scrub master himself, uh, Stephen Cush. Uh, Lucas, this is one that like, I think everyone's going to be a little bit excited about. One I'm definitely excited about because he's worked with every species from mammal to reptile that I could ever want to work with. We'll, we'll get to that towards the end. I, I want to try I, to keep I'm it on I'm just scrubs. saying, like, this man has worked with the animals that one most dreams about. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just excited to uh, sit down and talk with him tonight. Lucas, you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I felt like, number one, being a retic owner, and for those of you that listen to the retic lounge, you know, for the most part, you either want retics or, or have retics. And I don't know, there's like this idea that I, I've always thought of scrubs as like the the Michael Phelps of retics, like the more athletic retic. Um, the guy I, that got me into retics is constantly talking me out of having retics and he's like you scrubs, need scrubs right exactly yep. and, and you don't need your retics you just get scrubs so i feel like most people that have retics if they don't have scrubs have questions want to know more and so this was probably one of my most anticipated species spotlight that i wanted to do for our, our listeners so we're excited to to do that before we jump in though just want to give a shout out to our Patreon members over at our Retic Lounge Patreon. Appreciate all of you in your support. And we just had a lot of chat in the background that we are going to be providing access to um, for you guys. If you guys are interested, there's that link down below, patreon.com forward slash the Retic Lounge. And uh, for anybody that is new and has subscribed because we've upped our subscribers over the last month, thank you so much. Hit that notification bell. We have new episodes every Friday. And uh, that that's... All I have. Are you ready to get Steven on? Oh, disclaimer real quick. Yep. Steven just moved not too long ago. Actually, I don't know when exactly, but his internet connection's a little spotty, so you might see him a little blurry. Um, we're going to do our best to salvage as much as we can of the, the episode to make it smooth. So if we're pausing in between, we just want to make sure that you guys can, can hear everything, and we're going to do the best that we can to give you guys an awesome episode because I know that Steven and Scrub Pythons is definitely worth, um, you know, the, the, the hype that we're, we're hoping that this episode brings. Yeah. And from what I've heard so far, like we can hear him pretty well. It's just, you know, a little, uh, he's like a I robot said, tonight. Yeah. A little bit like uh dial up AOL. That's right. what I was saying earlier. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's get into it. All right, let's go ahead and bring him on. Whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stewart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows, on Morph Market, and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. 
Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stewartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best-looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cubed Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer, creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heli Guy Serpents, the premier source for 3D printed caging accessories. Again, that's www.heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. All right, I what's love up, Steve? Hello, <laughs> <laughs> be here. <laughs> what's going on guys <laughs> <laughs> what's going on man it's appreciate great to have having you. you on man absolutely thanks for having me for sure um let, let's go ahead with the cheesy corny way and just kind of introduce yourself and reptiles mm -hmm. in general when that all started for you give us the the good old-fashioned cheesy podcast intro of yourself yeah i mean it, it's been it's been lifelong um uh when i was you know one two years old before i can remember you know i was watching steve Irwin all the time um for anybody who has been to a tinley park show before like the last like really before covid they saw bubba the alligator out front he's that like big 10-foot alligator that everyone sits on and takes pictures uh the original bubba was at my fourth birthday party and uh i was dressed up as steve Irwin, so i think from there the writing was on the wall that something like this was was coming um 
I just, I've had some very uh, lucky moments uh, in my life that have uh, really paid off. Um, my pediatrician was uh, heavily involved in the Chicago Herb Society, which is one of the you know longest, most storied herb societies out there. And they threw an event called Reptile Fest, which kind of like take take Arlington for say the size of the Arlington NRBC, make it zero sales, all education. And that's what they did once a year. So I was six, seven, eight years old running around that place, you know, holding all the snakes and iguanas, petting tortoises, you know, it was just, uh, that's an awesome experience. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was incredible. Um, and then probably about eight, nine years old was when I was like, all right, I, I want, you know, start getting some pets and went on the YouTube and, you know, watched everybody watched a lot of the early snake bites videos. Um, Those are my and favorite. I, I, yeah, the, those early days were fun. Um, one of my most vivid memories is I was watching one of the videos and, and Brian standing in front of like a wall of babies. And he says, uh, he's like, you know, people ask me all the time how I pay for all this. Like why breed snakes for a living? And that was just like the light bulb moment in my head. Like that's a thing. And from, from, from there on out, I, like, I know what I want to do. Um, and then when I was 13 in eighth grade, uh, we had to do like a week long internship somewhere kind of just part of the curriculum. And I wanted to do something with reptiles. Um, and, uh, I was at that reptile fest show introduced to Rob Carmichael, who uh, owned the wildlife discovery center outside of Chicago, uh, where I grew up. And, uh, he, that, he recently uh, retired and uh, closed down the center, but I ended up doing a week there as a volunteer uh, when I was 13. And I came in as a, as a, you know, six, one, six, two, 13 year old. And they didn't think I was 13. And I just kind of kept coming back and they realized a few months later that I was a lot younger than I was supposed to be. And they're like, you could stay and do free labor for us. And I was like, <laughs> all right, let's do it. But uh, there were, you know, olive pythons, water monitors, king cobras, bushmasters, Ming Shan vipers, crocodilians. I mean, it was it was heaven for me. Um, heaven for any and to be person. you know to be thirteen. Oh yeah, but like to be to be a kid and to yeah. walk into that place and you know basically be able to learn and you know educate people, kind of learn how to communicate about this thing that I love. Um, it was it was integral for me. Because before that, you know, as everyone does who gets into it, I, I love ball pythons and it was all about the morphs. And I was interested in other things, but I didn't, I like, I was really fascinated with green tree pythons. And, um, but I just didn't really have much of an avenue to gain experience or knowledge, like hands on. Um, so this was just, this was everything I could have ever hoped for. And uh, I ended up working there for high school. Um, during high school, started acquiring more species. The, the scrub pythons crossed my path when I was about 17, 16, 17 years old. And, uh, and ever since I, I, I got my first one, it was March Tinley, 2017. Um, I, uh, it was just on like a little like Tinley classified Facebook page of the red neonate. And, uh, you know, I was, I was nervous. I had kept a bunch of pythons, you know, olives, timors, white lips, but like, there was this like allure to scrub pythons that they were just like one step up. There are these heat seeking demon monsters that are going to kill you and they're going to bite your face off until you, you know, want to like 
chop their heads off with a kitchen knife. And you can't even do that because they're going to bite you before you can get the knife to them. Um, so Steven's but, like, sign uh, me up. <laughs> well, it was, like, it was always something that I wanted to conquer. I just became fascinated. Um, you know, listening to all the old Morelia Python radio podcasts I could. Just like, it was, you know, it was cool because I had an opportunity at the previous Tinley to buy a scrub python. I spent all my money already, but I didn't know too much about them. Um, and then shortly thereafter started like, there was an old, uh, it was like ball Python UK forums and page that laid out all the localities of scrub pythons. And to this day, there's nothing that is better out there as far as kind of uh, like a picture guide to localities of scrub pythons. Right. So like, I, I, I still use those old forums for the green tree pythons and the retakes. Like they, they, they uh -huh. like you can go on those old forums and they have just like a gold mine of information. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's something to be said for how, how that format worked as opposed to the, the Facebook format, which quite clearly is, uh, is not, not it. Um, but, uh, I guess to, to round out the, uh, the biography, so to speak, um, uh, during high school is when I met Forrest Fanning and Desiree and, uh, uh, I was in, I went to college for like six months. And during that period of time, I was hanging out with Forrest a lot traveling and, and, uh, you know, one thing led to the next and I'm, I, you know, left school. It wasn't ever for me. I knew it wasn't going to be for me, but I can at least say that I know that now and, uh, moved down to Indianapolis and, uh, lived there for about four and a half years, you know, was involved with rodents, reptiles, all that stuff. So in that time, uh, you know, definitely was able to gain a lot of very valuable experience, you know, grow my collection and, uh, and now here we are today. I, I think that, you know, everyone has that childhood story, but like yours kind of took it to the next level where you're able to get some hands-on experience with some pretty crazy species early on. And yeah. I, I can totally mm -hmm. see how like, you're like, yep, scrubs, right? Like, because you know, the, the reputation of wild caught scrubs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of like a, a painting on the wall. You just kind of see it kind of play out. So that that's, that's yeah. awesome, man. And there, there's yeah. one other thing that I want to touch on also before we uh, get into the scrub bit of things. But uh, mm -hmm. what's your opinion? You touched on going to something in Chicago uh, that was mostly educational, the size of Arlington. Yeah. What do you think about adding education to, you know, NARBC like we have now? Uh, I see a lot of that in the hair industry. I I work in the hair industry and there's a lot of education that I goes along with those expos. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, no, no, you're, you're good. At least you, you pulled off the bald barber joke better than most. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think it would be something I would love to participate in if there were, you know, little rooms off to the side of, of the, of the expo floor that we're just doing education on different species. I think that would go a long way in our hobby. Yeah. I mean, what was so great was that it was no sales at all. So all the vendors were kind of, were in it together. You know, a lot of them were members of the herb society. There's no, this guy hates this guy. And I mean, there was probably a little bit of that, but like mm -hmm. there was a common goal of, educating instead of right. who's going to make the most money this weekend that and uh i mean i think so much more good came out of those and i, I think they're still happening today the, the reptile fest shows than you know most 
modeling shows that are out there. But uh, and yeah, it would be great to have stuff like that. It's just like, I guess if you're, if you're a show promoter, you know, you're probably getting more money for those tables from people who are making money off those tables. Um, so I guess what it would be great. I just think, you know, it comes down to the practicality from a business standpoint. It's probably a reason why it's been, it hasn't really been a thing up until now. Right. And, and you, you talk about the educational standpoint. And I think we can even say the same as far as the old school forums. Everyone, when mm-hmm. everyone would go on there to contribute and to share, and people would then make posts for feedback, and you'd get a bunch of people who would get tagged for, uh, like, to share the information. But, but Facebook seems today to always be this one-up type of ordeal, and I, I really miss those old-school forum days. Um, it's it's a bummer. I think it, it, probably a couple of weeks ago, uh, I got a new kick with Green Tree Pythons. I went back to just read some shit that I read when I was like 16 and just to see how people conduct themselves on there um, versus how things are conducted now on Facebook. It's it's kind of just a, a bummer where we're, we're yeah. at, I'm hoping that we can turn it around. But Yeah, I mean, social media has done you know great things for the hobby, especially for new people, but it, it's at least to me, it's, it's trash and the things that I, I cherish the most about, you know, my, my teenage years and the hobby, you know, the 2010 to like 2016 era. Um, you know, I feel like communities were a lot tighter back then. Um, somehow with, with more connection, we become more fragmented, which is kind of, it's interesting to me. Um, yeah, that, that but, uh, for sure. And uh, you know now there's there's more shows than ever. There you know there's there's a lot of accessibility, and uh, I can't I kind of I guess it's watered it down a little bit. Like, you know the old like you know, MVF forum, like that was that was where you go. Yeah. Like if you want like the best minds in Green Tree Pythons, they went to this place as opposed to today. You know there's um, dozens of of Chondro Facebook groups that. You know, you see the same posts in all of them, <laughs> you know, yep. and and why wouldn't you if you're trying to promote your your stuff, you know, try to get it out there as far as you can. But I think the impact of that one central forum, uh, you know, carries a lot more weight. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, if it's OK with you guys, I kind of want to start to to get into this this component of, of scrub pythons. Um, so w- when did you. When did you acquire your first scrub python, and and what locality was it? So it was uh, it was a barnick. It's a male that I still have, um, and he. This gets into a, a longer conversation about locality type, but uh, he was sold to me as a sarong. Uh, today you call him a manaquari. Um, you know, I call him one of my favorite snakes, and he's a barnick. But uh, he was a, a red neonate. Could have been more than. A couple of months old um and uh you know i think for me that was the absolute perfect place to start um you know scrub pythons they have this reputation of of being uh, aggressive snakes like they're they're not like other pythons or other snakes as far as how they act and uh i mean my arms are pretty scar free and i I have well over a hundred of these snakes um it just it couldn't be further from the truth you know, you, you take a big sample size of reticulated pythons, green tree pythons, ball pythons, corn snakes, 
you're, you're going to get a variety of different different demeanors. And I, I have, you know, I have a good number of scrub pythons that I, I don't, you know, handle like like the one in the picture on the thumbnail where it's coming at my face. You know, I, that would not end well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not nine out of ten of them. That's maybe one out of every ten to fifteen of them. Yeah. And the same could be said for almost every other reptile. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that facet. As a matter of fact, I remember thinking the other day, like I came across a few Facebook posts in a single day where I saw ball pythons nipping, being defensive. And I was like, we don't think of ball pythons as doing that, but there's always like exceptions and there's always outliers. And and um, what what I contribute to scrubs, and, and I want you to kind of go into this to tell me whether I'm right or I'm wrong, but just from videos, because I've actually never held or seen a scrub Oh, in person really i, I mean I, I think i might have i think i might have seen some at shows and like they're but but i've never held i've never interacted with with a scrub python um mm. and and i love them i'm fascinated by them um i actually know someone who potentially is going to be making some Halma hera scrubs this year and I'm, I'm doing everything in my power to convince them to hold back the clutch and send me a pair just to park here um <laughs> and um uh what i I, I feel like scrubs are really not far behind. And if anything, at the same level, and you might even say more, but the intelligence that they have is is like just beyond most other species of snakes out there. And yeah. I think they're capable of that higher intellectual thinking that, that retakes are capable of where you can work with most animals to get them to understand that human interaction is going to be part of their life. Yes, for sure. So I, I guess I'll, I'll preface everything I'm going to say about scrub pythons with that. I'm, I'm heavily biased. Um, but this, this does come with, you know, I, I've, I've at this point, you know, and I say this very, with a lot of gratitude, I've been able to work with hundreds upon hundreds of species of snakes. And uh, without a doubt, scrub pythons are the most intelligent snake I've ever come across. Awesome. Um, and I don't think there's one that I could compare them to. Um, you know, there's a they, the the most comparable snake is probably a reticulated python, especially like a, a dwarf locality, like a Halmahera or Ternate or something like that. You know, similar size range. Because once you get like 15, 17 foot mainlands, they're really not the same snake at all. Um, but a, a retic of a comparable size to a scrub python is probably the closest comparison you, you can you can get. Um, but uh, it's one of the things I, I love the most about them. They're they're very they're calculated. Um, they they're confident. They're they're physically capable, and they know that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's their that's what they're about. Uh, you know, as as much as they know that they can mess you up, they can also know that you are no threat to them. Right. And, you know, this is routine. They're, they they get very accustomed to routine. If I take the snake out the same way every week when I clean it or, or you know, a few times a week when I clean them, if, you know, I, I put them in the same spot or I hold them the same way, they just get accustomed to it. And, you know, when I when I go through and I, I take care of all my snakes, you know, for the most part, they're they're exiting the enclosure because they do have a strong feeding response. And unless one is in the hide box and totally, you know, unengaged, you're not really going in there and, and spot cleaning a, you know, a poop in the corner. 
because they they do have insanely large strike ranges. It's just yeah, it's just the physiology. And, so and if, that, you know, that, working, that's why I describe them as like the Michael Phelps of of like compared to retics yeah. because they're just yeah. like they're they're like the retic but like ten times more athletic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just that that prehensile tail, their their ability to. I mean, I've had a scrub python be. 10 foot scrub python completely stretched out lengthwise along a, a bank of cages curl a tail like eight inches of its tail around a a, we- a caster wheel in two seconds pull its body all the way back and up the rack that's from insane. a dead stop that's insane i mean they are they are insanely athletic you know you have to be they, they're tricky too that'll you know, stop when, you in the track in your tracks the first time you see it very quick <laughs> yeah I, I you know they one thing i will say is they uh I, I have moments every now and then where i'm like i got brought back down to earth as far as what these snakes are capable of you know because i you know I, I mean there there was a narrative for a long time with scrub pythons primarily uh perpetrated by one person that they are just these heat-seeking missile demons and you got to basically treat them like a venomous snake um is it controversial that, to say who that person is sorry i'm not too sorry you're fine you're oh, fine that's, that's fair yeah oh no yeah but um anybody who knows scrub pythons knows exactly like from a while ago knows exactly who i'm talking about i'll ask my buddy and when i say I'm, I'm, I'm gonna join the facebook groups i'll find yeah, out I'll, I'll tell you guys off the air. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you know this guy's not involved in the community anymore um but it was it was like a form of gatekeeping where you know this guy didn't want other people to have scrub pythons he wanted to be the guy with scrub pythons and to do that sounds like a great business model <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah right um but uh in the process this this reputation was just kind of born and it doesn't come from nothing like i was like i'm saying there they are potentially all of that just most of them are they have these capabilities their their physiology is their physiology they just they don't it's just not you know they don't live up to that reputation especially captive red animals um of course there's outliers but in my collection right now i have I, you know easily over 50 captive red pythons and of that group two or three of them i wouldn't just hold like this okay yeah, I mean, um, that... and it, so, it, it holds true of other species, you know, same with the early wild retics and, you know, even like the locality stuff now, they're, they can be wild snakes. Yeah, I mean, what it is. I only have a group of six pretty full grown adults and, you know, of that six, I have two that, you know, I, I, I can handle and everything. It's just, I wouldn't let them up near my face. And, you know, I definitely can tell yeah. when they're body language changes and it's not as comfortable a situation right and 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 they think mm-hmm. just going off of like the localities or retakes that we have and like f1s and oh stuff, oh yeah you, the you locality got, definitely plays you, into it you, you got to see phil's f1 halmahera mm-hmm. um and just the the massive difference that these halmaheras have compared to you know a, a standard captive bred even cross locality superdorf or, or even a mainland but um yeah i thought I, some of my retics could be spazzes but yeah i was no i, was I mean totally my, wrong yeah, oh, my my Hama hair is here. I my got female a female hair would take some this. Sorry. No, uh, no, go for it. I want you yeah, to keep yeah, going. I'm I want sure to hear about it, that. I'm sure it's relevant. I'll just say, my my female Hama hair retake is is the craziest snake I've ever worked with. 
when you when you first come near the enclosure like i've never seen a snake react like that like i you know i i have retakes behind me and you know they definitely react when i'm near the glass but those snakes just like they're ready yeah they're like little flying carpets Mm -hmm. they're just like up in the air and like launching themselves to see if they can get past the glass now i will say i have i have you know siblings two f1s a male and female and getting them out of the enclosure and turning that food response is always fun but i will say i've worked with them heavily and once i have them out i just posted a video on my instagram they're they're puppies they're sweet once you have them out they're totally fine but but anytime I enter that enclosure and I open it, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I feel like with some scrubs, like the, that's the, prepping you for scrubs, right? The, the way in my mind that I see scrubs on videos and stuff is I've seen people open the enclosure, take them out and stuff. And scrubs, I feel like are very much you, you enter that enclosure and they're kind of just like, they want to explore you more than you want to explore them. And if you're able to break off any of the the response of feeding or whatever the case may be, I feel like it could be the same as my homas. They'll, they'll be fine. But I've seen some videos of some pretty um, intense reactions and not, not from me. It's intense. I'm sure for someone who works with them, it's, it's typical scrub behavior. Maybe not. You could, you could tell us Steven, but they, they have this presence about them that must be respected, but I'm sure it's some of the most rewarding interactions that you've mm-hmm. ever had. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I'm saying about their, their confidence. Um, yeah. What, what, what scrub pythons and retics, like one way they differ when you, unless there are rats in the room, when you open that enclosure, the scrub pythons not just flying out like, Oh, okay. Now what they, <laughs> They're, they know what they're 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 shooting for before they before they strike, um, and they're you know you you can you can see in their eyes that there's a lot of you know for a snake relatively speaking a lot of brain activity going on there you know they're they're very analytical um, but but yes uh, when when you can kind of figure out how to you know broach that interaction to where you are interacting with the snake and it's calm and it's moving through your hands. It's a super rewarding feeling. Um, you know, especially knowing like it's not really a snake. You can, you can muscle around, um, you know, they're, that they're going to have their way if they really, if they really want to. So, you know, it takes some, some tact as far as that goes. Um, you know, over time I've, I've kind of figured out a number of things that can, make a scrub python more comfortable in an interaction um but uh you know like like you know like you said and i agree the the reward at the end is is very gratifying i i love the 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 retic like you open up the enclosure they come out and you're like ah like that that's literally a retic as they come out mouth open just like an idiot and they're like mm-hmm. and then they stop and they're like now what like that that was literally <laughs> perfect retic description of a hungry retic um because literally yeah. i see that all the time i open up they'll fly out mouth open and then they sit there and they're like why is there no food they yeah they miss and they're like <laughs> what what happened right um <laughs> but yeah no scrubs every video i've ever seen of them is it's they're just very i guess the one word is precise um yeah and and, and that's what i'm obsessed with is i i always love the higher 
intellect and I love monitors probably won't be able to keep big species monitor anytime soon or ever. Um, cause my wife would probably leave me, but, um, so anytime I can, I can own a snake that, that, you know, gets close to the thinking level of a monitor, even though there's really the comparison's hard to make, but, um, scrubs yeah. are it scrubs, scrubs are definitely it. Um, yeah. Now let, let me ask you this. Um, I want to get some into to some informative information here. So I kind of right. want to, I, I want to know from you, like what localities do you work with? And then what localities are there? Because if I'm not mistaken, um, I'm pretty sure that there are, um, there's been some recently discovered new localities. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, so, you know, to, to just break down the complex, there are the, the five species within Somalia that are considered the scrub pythons. You know, we also have the Bolens pythons and the Owen Pelly pythons, which I'm not sure at the moment if they are classified in Somalia. They were at one point if they're not now. But of the scrub pythons, you have obviously the, the King Horneye, which are the Australian scrubs, which we don't have in the U.S. hobby. There are, are two are males. Those, are, are those the biggest? Yes. Yeah, those are the ones you see that like that guy in the river in Australia with the the retic sized scrub python that's what that is those giant um, heads yeah yeah they're they're incredible um there are two males in the country there are reptile gardens in south dakota um and that's it um to my knowledge at least that's a bummer and then um the four that are available in the hobby are somalia amethystina uh, which is kind of the broad spectrum scrub python um, like the classic which, scrub yeah, there's lots of different localities fall under that classification. The, the Morelia viridis of scrub pythons, kind of the, uh, a comparison. Um, there's Somalia traceae, which are the Halmahera scrub pythons. Uh, Somalia nauta, which are the Tanumbar scrub. And then Somalia classilepis, which are the Moluccan scrubs. Um, Do you have a favorite? I, I mean, I think I'd have to say the Barnex. Um, Classic. Because, I mean, that, was, that was your first one, right? Yeah, the, the Malukans are, I mean, they're they're 1-1-A. One, one you know, if I had to keep one scrub python, it would be really difficult. If I had, if I could keep one type and work with them and breed them, it would absolutely be Barnex because the variety and the chance for line breeding with them is just absolutely endless. Where with Malukans, because the color palette is more limited than Barnex, there's not as much to do, even though there is quite a bit. Um, just the, you know, from tan to dark brown to black to gold. To, I mean, that, that whole spectrum, the the pattern, there's no two that are alike. Um, you know, I'd have to say that the Barnex are, are my are my favorite. Yeah, I, I would definitely say for me, I just from everything that I've looked at, I definitely, the Halmaheras are probably my, but aren't the Halmaheras a different subspecies? Yeah, so that's uh, Traceae. So they're full okay. full species separate. And then within Amethystina, there are localities from above the dividing range in, in West Papua, below the range, island types, and they're all very different from each other. Um, but so just to go over that, you have the Barnex, which people will separate into different locality types. Um, I have feelings about that, but the typical locality types you'll see are Sarong, Jayapura, Manaquari, and then you'll see some that are labeled like Kofiao or uh, Wageo or um, Arfak. You know, a lot of these 
locality type names that are just you know placed on on green tree pythons and you know uh, tree monitors and and whatnot um you have the southern types which would be like the highland types which are not actually in fact highland dwelling but they look different than what you call the maruki types um and then you have sort of island locality types go aru key island on the, on the southern portion and then Biak on the northern portion as a very, very distinctive population. Um, and then within the mainland, you have the Wamina type on, on the north, which people say there aren't scrubs in Wamina. Those are from Jayapura. I know for a fact there are scrubs in Wamina. They don't look like what we call Waminas. Those are from Jayapura, but there are also Barnex in Jayapura. It's like... And Jaipur is just a big city in, in West Papua, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. are there scrub pythons that are, you know, like, what, what are we really calling what here? Um, it, I made know, this one or two in I, my I description. Wanna, but I, this I just, story out so, sounds all too familiar. Yeah, I mean, the, the confusion. The same within, with everything. But, but, yeah, I mean, I also hear the, the, the similarities with the green tree pythons as well. But, but what I love that even you guys are doing with the scrubs is you guys are including that word type at the end of the localities. And I really wish the retake industry would adopt that. Um, it's, it's irresponsible not to for, for the scrub right. pythons. And I know the, the retakes, there've been many more true documented, right. at least I'm not quite as up as you guys are, but um, with scrubs, I, I, to my knowledge, I couldn't even say there's one, especially with the Barnex. Um, you know, like the Halmaharas were, uh you know like the 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 expedition that found that discovered that species a lot more legitimate you know like dave barker and and you know real legitimate herpticulturists from the u.s um mm -hmm. but like with with the barnex i i don't i do not label mine with locality type um if if somebody wants to me to like describe one well what would you roughly call it? it's like yeah maybe like sarong type but if you look at its sibling it has almost no pattern at all sarong types are known for heavy banding okay so what is this sibling from hundreds of miles away across the continent like right are you kidding me <laughs> you know I, and i'm not saying there aren't locality type differences but maybe they're not pattern right maybe they're scalation maybe their size you mm -hmm. know maybe pattern the the variable that is that is not constant across the board it's, it's you know it's variable across the range potentially yeah for, for someone like me that's a locality geek and the retic and the the green tree python world it's it's uh very anxiety provoking <laughs> yeah but um so i mean but the thing is, I, I find it funny that as, as a hobby, you know, what, what do we call a locality type? We, we call it something that looks different. Right. What, who are we to say that that's what makes something different from place to place? Right. I, I don't know. Like, why, why is that? Why is their outside appearance what makes them different from Sarong on, on the Northwest to Jaipura, damn near at the border of, of, of PNG? Especially areas of that size, you can't imagine that the the landscaping and, and the the environment is so drastically different that time and time again it would result in the same exact phenotypic expression. I'm sure it varies across the board. I mean, it, it probably does. And from what I've seen of captive clutches from adults that look very similar, it would support the theory that that locality type and phenotype 
with Barnex are are not the tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So out of those more rare, uncommon that are maybe quote unquote newer, which ones are you working with and kind of what are your plans to because you've done a great job with the Barnex. What are you at? Like you're at second generation or are you getting to I, so I've only been able to, you know, have first generation first clutches. Gen- my, okay. my oldest animal that I produced with 2020s. Um, okay. And there's not I, a ton uh, of success within the U.S. in terms of captive bred clutches, right? Um, you know, there's there's really never been anyone who's gotten it down routine. Um, it's not like breeding retakes uh, where a six-year-old can do it. Yeah, no, no. I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, Chris Foley and, and David Means are the guys who had, had done it the longest time for the law, like with the most success routinely. Mm-hmm. Chris still has some scrub pythons, and though he's transitioned much more to monitors, and he produced croc monitors last year twice. Um, and then uh, Yasser Mustafa was one of the guys early in like early 2000s who had some clutches. Um, the Barkers had some success produce some beautiful animals. Um, Dave Prada, I think he's in New York, produced some of the best dark banded barnecks that have ever been seen. I, I have a look at an adult female that he produced that, in my opinion, is one of like the five nicest females I've ever seen. Um, but a lot of those people who were doing it aren't doing it now. There has been success intermittently with different people, but um, you know, it's it's been one of those things where, or, you know, I'm I'm leaving out some other notable people, um, but uh, you know, there's been success, but then the animals kind of disappear and the collection gets sold off, and where did they go? Oh, they went here. Oh, they died. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. And now there's more imports coming in, and um, but then when they were banned in Florida not so many imports anymore you know joe swatowski is not posting a list every month with five to ten scrub pythons on it and uh you know that then it becomes a bit more of a problem where it's like all right now we really have to rely on the the captive breeding so i I, i'm happy to see it and don't get me wrong like i love i love the idea of importation do i wish retakes could be imported still like it's 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 a you know, it, it strings me back and forth on both. Like, I would absolutely love it. Do I think it should be limited or permitted? Yeah, absolutely. But, like, I love the idea of bringing in imports, but I think any time that we can work really hard to establish a captive-bred uh, colony of animals, that that's so important for herpetoculture in the U.S. Because um, not everyone's equipped to own a wild caught animal not everyone's equipped to to not everyone knows how to treat for parasites how yeah. how to 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 you know establish a wild caught animal and uh, speaking of how is it establishing wild caught scrubs i would say across the board across the board it's not terribly difficult compared to some other species um I found that the best way to do it is just kind of keep them in real simple, dark, quiet quarantine setups and uh, just offer whatever food items you may until they decide to eat one. And, uh, you know, here's my pinky. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But the the fresh wild caught scrubs, they can be a lot more skittish, Um, you know, oftentimes just 
based on the process of importation, they, they come in a bit underweight, um, you know, dehydrated. Sometimes people get them, don't do the due diligence as far as with a fresh wild crop. So then you're working with a couple more weeks of attrition before, you know, you may get your hands on them. Um, but with all that said, I think, I, you know, I've, I've gotten quite a few wild caught scrub python. I mean, you know, probably you know, north of 50 individuals over time. And uh, most of them have established for me. And, you know, some of my, my adult breeders now are, are animals that come in as, you know, wild caught two, three, four year olds. So not, not, not incredibly difficult, but, uh, but, you know, not, not a complete cakewalk either. Yeah. Um, what is their enclosure like? What do you keep them in from neos to, to, you know, adults? Um, you know, I know that, like you said, they have a prehensile tail. So obviously mm. they're, they're arboreal or at, at the very least semi, semi arboreal. Yeah. Um, sure. so, so what do you, what do you do for them? So, um, and, and apparently in scrub pythons, it's a controversial take, but I, I raise the young ones in, in tubs. Um, you know, I have some racks with some slightly taller tubs that I, that I use for them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do that until about the size where they can go into a two foot cubic enclosure. Um, and then, you know, upgrade until uh, the point of my adult cages are uh, six feet long, two feet deep, and two and a half feet tall. And uh, I have some monsters that are in eight by two by threes. They're like 12, 12 foot individuals. Um, Wait, so so you're saying monsters and you're describing a 12 foot scrub? Yeah, a 12, a 12 foot scrub is like a is like a six foot nine person. Um, they just they don't get that big. You, you'd have to J Brewer them to get them 13. <laughs> I'm so happy you said I was actually going to ask you, is it is it as easy to get a scrub obese as it is a retic? Easier. Their metabolisms really? are not as fast as as uh, retics. Yeah, that's that's surprising. Yeah, I imagine um, if you were just throwing food at them with how they're built, they could get fat fast. Yeah, and and there is a middle ground of a healthy weight scrub python. Um, right. Some of the dogma for a while was feed your scrub pythons three, four times a year, feed babies every third wow. week. I'm like, that's malnutrition. That's a state that's gonna kill you. I mean, it's a snake that will never breed under any circumstances or be like a solid captive. Um, yeah, and I mean, I feel like a, a snake that you feed that much, like your your interaction with them is zero. Like the thing is always going to want to eat. Yeah, so it, it's 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 a balancing act with them. When they're young, feed them as much as you want within reason. They're going to use all of those calories for for healthy growth. I've never seen a fat young scrub python. Same with yeah. retics. Um, I, I tell people you'll never see an obese retic that's, you know, under two years old. Yeah. So basically the first two years with occasional, uh, you know, discrepancies, they, they eat weekly. Um, they can handle solid size food items and, and they do better on them. If you want to see a lump, the snake is going to grow faster and healthier to be able to cope for the increase of the, the food size, um, you know, so I also learned that the hard way I've had some scrub pythons that I've raised on some smaller food items. They take a lot longer to grow. They have smaller heads come adulthood. To me, they just don't look like the most robust scrub python that they can. 
they're still mm-hmm. great. I've had some that have that have bred, um, but to me, I, I just in my experience, the, the larger meals have um, have been more more beneficial. By the time they reach about like a sixty-five gram small rat to medium rat, I back them down to every other week. By the time they can eat a large rat, about every third week, and then adults, it's very much seasonal on the feeding. Um, you know, right now, I, most of my adults haven't eaten for about eight weeks now. Um, but then there's there's times where they're eating every week for a month, and then for a few weeks, and meals every third week get the breeding season. Females that lay, they'll get weekly meals until I can see they put some weight on. Then they're backed off every other week. Once their body weight is back, now they're back on their normal schedule. Um, so with with the adults, there there really isn't like a routine to it it's very much what what's this what's the plan with this animal what does it need to eat for and you know how much intake does it does it need during a particular time of year yeah it seems like during the cooler months you're feeding less and then when it lays you know and it, it needs more nutrition needs to to gain more weight you're feeding them more and giving them and getting those those calories up in order for it to get back to that size and then there's this this I don't want to say maintenance feeding, but there's definitely a feeding regimen to make sure they don't get overweight. Um, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's, I, I feel like most species we should be using that method of, of eyeballing and understanding and observing and, and knowing our animals and what they need, as opposed to, you know, the ball Python method, which is, you know, a, a, a medium rat every week or a large rat every week and worrying about grams and worrying about all these different things where, you know, um, I, I really, I, I've gotten to that with my retics now, even the younger ones where I used to be a lot more regiment. And now I'm just like, if you're not pacing, if you're not looking for food, if you're not lunging out for food, you know, I can, the, the snake can hold off. But then when I do feed it, I'll feed it a bigger meal and sometimes smaller meals. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I, I'm sitting in my rattlesnake room right now. And you know, these guys, they roommate, they don't eat from about late October until mid-March. People doubt their, some of their pythons. That's absolutely insane. Those snakes do not brood in the wild. They'll, they'll have periods of, of less prey availability, but that doesn't mean that they're in a, a semi-active state where they're not eating and hardly drinking water for, for months and months on end. So, you know, it, it's all about, you know, treating your snake appropriately to what it is and then also knowing okay this is what a healthy retic scrub python green tree carpet python looks like mm-hmm. and feed accordingly to what is a healthy individual within the reptilian species yeah yeah absolutely and now i want to go back to like the f1 f2 or, or, or you're working with f1s but you talk the about barnack Captain... stuff yeah i mean the barnack stuff or just in general is there is there a pretty drastic difference in behavior and I, I I don't even know this is a word ownability like people's ability to to keep these animals. Well, I mean, we were talking about the Halmaharas earlier. Is there a Halmahara of the the scrub pythons that like is just a little bit more playful to work with? Yeah, like locality wise across the board, are there some easier to work with, some that are more difficult? What's your experience with that? Um, I would say across the board they're really they're really pretty similar um how scrubs are they're different and they're 
in the way they act, but I wouldn't say they're more aggressive or defensive one way or another. They're just different snakes. They're uh, a lot more secretive. Um, they they don't move around nearly as much as barnacks or malukins. Um, but uh, once they are once they're established, um, they they I guess I'll preface it by saying they are much harder to establish uh, as imports. Um, some of them, you know, a lot of them never do. Uh, so what I was saying earlier about scrubs being relatively easy to establish doesn't always apply to Halmaharas. Um, but uh, otherwise, I would say they're, they're all fairly similar in temperament. Um, the tandem bar scrubs, which also happen to be the smallest ones, kind of have the reputation as, as being the most kind of touchy and, you know, quick defensive, um, which in my experience with them, which hasn't been that long, it took me about six years to find any of them. I, I have uh, three pairs now, um, but they're all wild caught. Um, it, it holds more true, but I also never had captive bred tandem bar scrubs, especially ones that I've raised. So I really can't say. Um, every baby that I've produced is puppy dog tame um to the point where you know if i there was a, a three-year-old in here I, I could take out some of my scrub pythons and put it around their neck and i'd be 100 percent confident nothing bad's going to happen um that a lot of it i think does come down to how i raise them as well um but it's nothing give, too crazy can you give us information on how you go about establishing captives and how you go about handling them yeah. and, and and so that you know your potential mm -hmm. buyers and people who buy these animals from you have a, a, a good experience? Yeah. So, um, you know, from a, a feeding husbandry standpoint, um, you know, they're across the board. They're, they're fairly straightforward, similar to other species. They, there can be some problem feeders. Some of them want to take birds at first. Um, but I've, I really have other than animals that were born with either defects or, you know, something, something that was very clearly wrong. Um, really haven't had failure failure to thrive in baby scrub pythons. I had some that have taken the better part of a year to take their first meal on their with their own, you know, by their own volition. Um, but after that they they do fine. Obviously they're well behind their siblings. Um, but uh, you know, they can sustain themselves for quite a while. As far as the handling and whatnot goes, um, from from out of the egg I, I grab them like this because that that's their the main kind of trigger for their defensiveness is something coming from above them um they love being above you above the action going up and away that's that's how scrub pythons feel comfortable mm -hmm. so, sounds like a super dwarf retake yeah and, and just and one that that climbs even better um yeah, exactly way better yeah and uh so from out of the egg i I go in up top, almost like the talon of a bird. That's how I grab them. Um, and it just desensitizes them to that top-down uh, reaction. Um, I, I really try to and, and, and almost never use hooks with, with the younger animals taking them out, um, you know, especially because, you know, I haven't sold a ton of scrubs that I produce, you know, hardly any, but I, I'm trying to, you know, one of my missions with this is to kind of break this long lasting stigma that's on the scrub pythons, which I find to be entirely untrue. And uh, what, what better way to do that than to be able to sell 
captive bred scrub pythons that are calmer than most ball pythons. And with nothing special, you know, I'm, I'm doing this just every, every week or twice a week when I clean their, their enclosures. Um, I'm not handling them all the time. I'm not handling them for long periods of time. It's just those, those interactions that go well, they go the same every time. It just, it creates calmer animals. Um, you know, I, I have a guy who bought uh, a pair of the Barnex from my first clutch, like a probably year and a half ago or so. And, uh, he he messaged me after he got them. He was like, "I'm almost disappointed. These things are not acting like scrub pythons." I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> sorry, I guess." Um, it's like I, I was up for the challenge. I didn't get the challenge. Yeah, it's, you know, sorry, this thing can crawl up on your head and you can you know fall asleep on your couch with it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just you know, it, it's it's incredible what these animals can be when they're handled properly you know, raise the right way. Um, what, what is yeah, it, what does it take to get on your short list? On my short list for what, for, for scrubs? Yeah. To buy. I mean, just, just reach out to me. Um, I, but you, you said you didn't sell many of them or things like that. So, I mean, is there, I, I just a... haven't because I've, I've held a lot of them back. Um, I just, that, uh, that that's when you know someone has a passion for a species when they produce a bunch of them and they're like, nah, I don't care to really sell any. <laughs> like I just want to keep them all. I'm you know to me I, I'm looking at my my collection. I'm like you know with my my yearlings, my babies, three year olds. Like they're better than all of my adults. So why not just keep them and and you know sell adults when the time comes. Um, and, you know, I want to produce multi-generation and, uh, you know, it's, it's not, trust me, I mean, I, I'd like to make money with these, the scrub pythons and, you know, I've, I've definitely have sold a number of them and I've, I'm very grateful for that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't care if I'm selling babies for 3000 a piece or 500 a piece. I, I'd surely like to get 3000, but it's not going to stop me from, from breeding them. Um, you know, I want to see what my fifth generation can look like in, you know, 20 years or 25 years or whatever. Um, so, you know, and, and some of them, they, you know, they obviously, if for whoever, whoever doesn't know, they're almost all scrub pythons go through an ontogenic color change. Um, so they're born on the spectrum of orange to red to kind of brown, depending on the locality type, um, with the exception of, uh, of Halmaharas, which are born with their adult coloration or as, you know, as close to as, as they can, which is very interesting. Um, so a lot of times you won't really see you, you might even see no pattern at all for the first two sheds and then in a year the animal is barred top to bottom and, and very heavily contrasted um That's so, so cool. you know unlike with retics you, you know you can probably to the best of your ability pick out holdbacks right out of the egg oh, um yeah, yeah easy. With, with the occasional you know i, I produced one barneck this year which came out like purplish silver okay, that's a holdback, you know, uh, that, that, that doesn't happen. Um, but otherwise you, you really have to give them time to come into their own a little bit. Um, typically yeah, it takes kind of, about a year. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the contra world where like you, there, there might yeah. be some. Not characteristic... so bad, but... yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to some variation degree, but I think that that's really cool. Like, so you mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. the color, you know, change and I, I did not, you know, I, I knew that they were born a little, but I, I, I never 
made the connection of that term to that, but that's kind of exactly what they do, I guess. Um, Cause I have seen some pretty reddish orange babies, but for some reason just never looked far enough into it to where I actually realized like, no, it's going through a full color change. Yeah. Which is very, very interesting. Um, it's one of my favorite parts about it too. Um, especially producing more clutches, trying to be able to like key out before the first shit before like the second shed. Okay. This is one that I know is going to be special, or this is the one that I think will be the best one out of the clutch just to kind of like test myself. You know, I'm, I'm not making sales off of, off of that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting just because we don't have a really large sample size of captive breeding. It's not like there's none. There's, you know, probably recently like five to 10 clutches probably produced in the world every year, uh, you know, like outside of, of Indonesia. Um, there's a handful of people in Europe who are doing a good job with them. Um, and quite a few people here in the U.S., especially over the last few years, who, who have had some good success breeding scrub pythons. Um, so, you know, I, I always kind of like to keep track of that to see, you know, see patterns um, that that come up. Um, one thing that I've been seeing a little bit of, which could be absolutely nothing, but could be something, is I, I have a theory that scrub pythons might be uh, temperature sex determinant. Um, the clutches that have been incubated higher seem to be more male heavy. The clutches that are incubated cooler seem to be more female heavy. Lucas, you're muted again. You got me. Um, man, it's been a while since I've done that, but shit. Um, all right. This so... is something we've kind of touched on even in retakes recently. So I'm excited to hear what Lucas wanted to say. Yeah, I, I was going to say, so I, I'm experimenting with that this year. So I'm, I'm incubating at like degree, degree and a half less. I'm doing 86 to like 87 max with my pure mm -hmm. Slayer clutch that's in the incubator right now with the idea okay. that I'm going to end up with a very heavy female ratio. And I'm, I'm very excited to share the results because I've typically have incubated at around 88, 87 and a half to 88. And my, my clutches yeah. have been, I don't want to say 50, 50, but it hasn't been anything drastic. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I've had like, uh, you know, 14, nine, you know, female okay. heavy. Um, but I'm interested to see what the 86 to 87 range instead of 88, 87.5 does. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's interesting to look at it like this because some of the more like typical species that are, are known to be temperature sex determinant are, like, you know, geckos, crocodilians, and the swing is like 82 females, 89 males. You know, that's pretty significant. You know, if we're thinking, if we're looking like 86 females, 88 males, could that be thinking too hard? You know, maybe. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I will say from my, my 2020, year of, of holdbacks um i have some that were produced by another guy who incubated cooler as well i incubated cool that year my ratio is like 3.15 and um from uh from 2022 i had three clutches incubated them all a little bit higher and uh i'm like four males heavy on my ratio so that, that's that's one that's one small sample size but i think especially the 3.15 uh is kind of telling of of you know there might where there's smoke there might be fire so yeah, might yeah. as well look in if it goes nowhere okay but it could be interesting it, 
if if you don't mind, and I know it's not not common place where scrubs are are bred successfully in captivity. So I don't I don't want you to share maybe any information that you might not want to share, but I am interested on the breeding parameters and what mm. you do to cycle females, the temperatures you keep your animals at um, mm. uh, throughout the year and then through breeding season and then what's the you know temperature range that you shoot for for incubation. Kind of like if you were to give a, a, a little like zip folder or a, a snapshot yeah. of, of you know breeding, uh scrubs 101 what does that look like so I'll, I'll preface this by saying i'm i'm still very much figuring it out um you got it most figured out compared to others but i i like i appreciate the humbleness <laughs> well i maybe not because i i have such a large sample size to go off of that you know you throw enough shit against the wall inevitably something might stick you know, <laughs> this, year I'm breeding, this year i'm breeding 19 adult females I sure hope I'll get something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's, that makes so, sense. And, but, like, you know, I know people who have bred, have had one pair they've, they've bred, and then they've, they've produced from that one pair. Uh, to me, that's, you know, that's almost more significant than going, than going three for 16. Um, but uh, with that said, um, this is the version one preliminary caveman scrub python breeding temp. Um <laughs> And, and really, it's it's nothing crazy compared to other pythons. No, um, and I, actually, I love that that that's like an honor to even like that that to me is so fulfilling to work with a species where you're on the ground level of trying to yeah. understand and learn. And mm -hmm. that, I don't know. To me, there's just there, that's something that makes my gear spin. That there's excitement in that. It's 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 one of the things that that uh, you know excited me the most was knowing that this was a a an area where there were some people who were very passionate about it and had large collections, but it really hadn't been brought to the mainstream yet. I mean, you know, especially like growing up, seeing the ball Python community, the people that did the best were the ones who had that new morph, like the, the first people with the pides, with the GHIs, with what, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and I, I just thought it was cool to like pioneer a thing. Right. And, show people why this is so cool obviously it's a different ones of species or a species complex compared to a morph but um you know to me it kind of fulfilled a similar kind of desire you know or something that i saw elsewhere i'm like that would be really cool to be involved in um so yeah i mean you know that's that's something that motivates me very much about the the scrub pythons is is you know being on the ground floor and since i've been involved you know i mean i've seen barnex go from $300 a piece to, you know, some selling for over $2,000 a piece. Um, that's not the main motivation by far, but it's a really, really cool kind of side effect of, of the popularity increasing. Um, so I guess a little bit of a, of a uh, tangent away from the breeding, but I, that's definitely something that, that uh, inspires me as far as, you know, having my involvement with these scrub pythons. So I'll, I'll take fault on the tangent. That was on me. <laughs> I took the ball and ran with it. Uh, so with, uh, with breeding, it's interesting. Um, it doesn't seem to be quite as like regimented as ball pythons or retics. There've been clutches that have hit the ground at all times of the year. Um, you know, the earliest clutches that I've had or I've seen were like 
January, February hitting the ground all the way to people getting fertile eggs in July. Um, the, the earliest that I've ever had a female lay was like early to mid January. It was a slug clutch. And then the latest I've had was the end of July, also a slug clutch. All of my good clutches have come from like March until like early June. Um, so over the summer is kind of like prep for breeding season, either kind of cutting females down who have the body weight or feeding females up that have the body weight. But come fall time, that's kind of when I want them to have their, what I feel is appropriate body weight. Um, and then kind of like mid to late fall, kind of around right now, um, you know, drop temperatures, reduce feeding, and kind of start to put them through a little bit of a cycle. Um, drop temperatures to what? Good call. Inside um, baseball, Lucas. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm going too fast. Um, so ambient temperatures I typically keep mine at year-round are like 78 to 81 degrees. Um, the the uh, Hold on, I'm going to real quick. 78 to 81 ambient, are you providing them with a hot spot as well? Uh, honestly, off season, no. Um, cool, because I, I I keep my retics and my chondros in my garage anywhere between seventy nine to eighty four. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've I've had breeding not going to happen. But as far as just keeping them, them thriving, digesting well, growing well, ambient is very effective for it. Um, so. I will provide supplemental heat during the cool down, during the breeding season, um, even, you know, to males. I have all my males in my bottom cages on my room. Typically I put three cages stacked high, males in the bottom, females in the two top cages. Um, and, you know, during the cool down, especially in the winter, if those males don't have supplemental heat, that cage will never get above 72 degrees. And then they can't really digest me meals too efficiently. And it just, you know, things don't, don't go quite as well. Um, you know, the, the cool down for the males is always very important for, you know, sperm production and whatnot. Um, but, uh, I haven't done it the same every year, but this year I've taken them down to like upper sixties, low seventies at night during the cool down period during the day, kind of back up to like 76, um, maybe 77 on a warmer day. So nothing too crazy. Um, I know people who have taken them into the low sixties, even upper fifties and, uh, and that's no supplemental heat. Uh, I think with, with supplemental heat, but where their ambient temperature is getting into the, you know, into the upper fifties or low sixties at night. That's pretty And, uh, I mean, and I just, I don't think I've seen more breeding success from that. Um, so I don't know if that's necessary. Uh, they seem they could tolerate colder temperatures, but is that part of the equation? I don't know. I, I don't until it seems necessary. I don't really feel like taking my scrub pythons down that low uh, routinely. Um, but then uh, once once you kind of bring temperatures back up, I I, I think I'll you know I, I started cooling down early this year because I moved and. Um, it was kind of like a function of my move. I wasn't able to set them up properly right up front. I, I just recently finished redoing my garage. They've been 
in my living room for a month now without any heat or light. Oh, so geez. I'm like, it's weird out, guys. <laughs> but uh, typically, if, if I wasn't moving, um, I would probably be early into the cool down now. And like by the beginning of January, starting to bring them back up and start to get meals into them. Um, doesn't really follow the typical seasonality, especially in the U.S., but what I have seen so far in my breeding and from other people, January and February are prime lock times. Um, and uh, heavy follicular development happening during those times. With scrub pythons, as opposed to other species, um, the, the females need to eat while they're breeding. If they, if they don't have uh, food intake, they just won't ovulate. Um, you know, I, from my knowledge, retics typically will go off of food when yeah. the females are ready to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've only they, ever if had they don't go off, they're like, they dramatically slow down. I, I've never had a female scrub go off of food any, any sooner than about two weeks prior to ovulation. Um, and I, I, I find those meals vitally important to, uh, to one, them having the, the kind of caloric ability to ovulate to decide hey, i'm not go- i'm not gonna eat food for you know quite a few months especially you know, in the biology of that animal you know their incubation period is about 90 days um you know that's that's three more months on top of another two months of them not eating you know they need to be able to one nourish all of those ovum and keep themselves alive for that long period of time a skinny state snake is not doing that and it's certainly not doing it well um so in my opinion, they need that caloric intake for ovulation. Um, so during that period, I'm probably feeding them a moderate size meal every two or three weeks uh, out of the Mo- cool down though. Moderate, you're talking about like two times their body size or? Oh, like like you can see a lump, but not from that angle. Like, okay. um, you know, like a 10 foot female, like a, a, a smaller end jumbo rat, maybe around 300 grams. Um, right out of their cool down though, what I'll, I'll do, uh, is give them a smaller meal just to kind of get that metabolism kicked in again. If it's still a little cool, nothing where it's going to be crazy, but then giant meal, you know, two colossal rats for a big female and, uh, you know, give them a few days, throw that mail in. Um, I've, I've been doing pairings now. I, I feel like with the scrub pythons, pairings will kind of spur follicular development. Um, I've noticed the I think same thing with retics too. And I know some people that that won't pair their retics until the female is off food. Um, yeah, it, it's hit or miss for me at least. I have I have some females that like I won't because I know their food response is insane. But others yeah. that I've I've raised as babies that I know their behavior, um, I'll do it early. And oftentimes, if I'll do an early introduction, it's not very long after after a couple of heavy meals where they'll go off of food, and I can't help but think that it's possibly. Uh, you know, you put a male in there and they start to get the idea that like, oh, things are happening. Okay. That makes yeah, sense. I, I've seen kind of the same thing with mine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then during that time, temperatures are going back up. You know, when when I want the females to be, <clears throat> you know, ovulating and <clears throat> their development to be happening, temperatures are really back to about normal. 
um, basking temperatures are about 86, 87 degrees, 88 degrees. Um, and I, I have those available 24 seven for them. Um, and they, they surely will utilize it during that, during that time. Um, <clears throat> scrubs aren't really heavy baskers uh, in my experience. Um, but, but a female who's developing follicles at, at certain points during that process, she is very much seeking that, that heat. So, um, that's, that's definitely important kind of contrary to my, my ambient keeping otherwise, but, uh, for those adult females, they they definitely with any with any snake, but they will utilize that um, that basking site for sure. And uh, like I've said, typically ovulations are occurring anywhere between you know late January and like early May, which is a pretty pretty big window. Um, but they've even been I've, I've had examples of outside either of those windows. Um, but like February, March into April is is like the the most success that I, I've I've had the best clutches, the most the highest fertility, um, kind of around those times. And then with incubation, um, the the coolest I've incubated at was uh, was eighty six, and then at day seventy, um, slowly decreasing it to where temperatures are down to about eighty four and a half. Um, scrub python eggs for some reason disproportionately to other snakes just give off a lot of heat and some people early on breeding scrub pythons lost clutches to overheating in the last 10 to 20 days of incubation um so bigger egg boxes and then temperature drops were utilized and that kind of neutralized the uh the threat of the uh overheating so i i have yet to incubate a clutch straight temperature all the way through uh, i know people who have and they've had success with it I, I just haven't done it myself. Um, I've incubated some clutches a little bit higher, 87, 87 and a half, probably parts of the, the box hitting 88. And I just, I've had worse luck with um, fecundity of, of the clutch. And then uh, I feel like the babies have been a bit weaker from the higher temperature uh, incubations, which I think, Kind of exists across the board with a lot of species. It's part of your babies seem to be uh, produced by cooler temperatures. Um, I know it can be overdone because I've done it. I uh, the year that I had scrub pythons at eighty four and a half, I had ball pythons in the incubator, and they were some fucked up ball pythons. They hatched like a day like seventy eight, and were like uh, they were they were very messed up. I, I think I had to put a couple of them down, but. Uh, you saw, I, I found too low for at least ball pythons, but, um, but then, but then scrub pythons, I would say if I had to give it a range that they, they really do have a range of when they can hatch. I, the earliest I've seen is about 70 to 75 days. Uh, the latest I've had was a baby hatch at, I think day 96. Um, I would say average is probably like 85. Um, okay. So but, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty similar to retics. Yeah, similar for sure. Um, so I'm going to let Nathan take over. I, I wanted to, to, to real quick kind of like summarize and kind of recap. If you have any final things you wanted to like that you had on your heart or on your mind that you wanted to share about scrub pythons, because I know Nathan wanted to take the time 
to talk to you about some of the other animals that you work with, but is there anything else about scrub pythons that you want to mention? And while you do that, I am going to run and take a piss because I have to pee out of my mind right now. Um, So I'm going to let you do that. And if you don't really have anything else you want to say, I'm going to let Nathan talk to you about all the other species that he's obsessed with that you keep. All right. Uh, I guess to, uh, to button up scrub pythons, um, for me, you know, I've worked with, with hundreds of different species of, of reptiles and animals in general. Um, and pythons have always kind of been where I, I, I land at the end of the day as far as what, what I'm most passionate about. To me, scrub pythons kind of, they, they encapsulate a bunch of different aspects about pythons that I love all in the same animal. So, you know, as, as everybody is, you know, I'm fascinated with like the large constrictors, uh, you know, those big, big snakes are just, they are what they are. They're, they're freaks of nature. Um, scrub pythons kind of, they, they, they fill that without going over the top. Um, you know, they're, they're not a snake. You need three people to work with that, you know, is a serious risk to your physical health. Although a, a big constrictor, you know, over 10 feet can potentially be, you know, in, in some situations. Um, but, you know, there are no 18 foot berm or retic. Um, yeah. I, I love arboreals. I, I love green tree pythons, um, you know, carpets, tree boas. And so that, that arboreal nature, that prehensile tail really does it for me. Um, I like their, their slim body structure they're they're pretty weightless when you're hand, when you're holding them they're holding you as much as as you're holding them um yeah i've you know, got to experience it a couple of times it's it's something different even especially mm-hmm. aside from the retics like they're very much more in control yeah and and i i like that a lot you know it's a, it's an interaction you're not you're not chasing the snake and it's also not sitting there like a rock it's you know they're they're very deliberate uh they're like i've been saying they're confident um you know you you need to you need to give them your attention but um i think almost the biggest benefit of that is you get to just witness their their behaviors and uh you know they're just they're they're fascinating um it's a small thing but they they feel velvety and incredible they have these giant overlapping kind of very uh shallow scales that it literally just feels like velvet um they you know, sounds exactly big... like what I was saying when I got into retics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, another thing that I, I love about them is just the the variety. Um, you know, uh, across the different species and phenotypes, there you know, there's easily over thirty different looks within scrub pythons. Not even considering all the different varieties within uh, Barnex or Highlands or you know Halmaheras. Um, so you know, it's not like olive pythons. You know, I have a pair of olive pythons. I love olive pythons. Every olive python is an olive python, and they'll always be <laughs> yeah. albinos. They're, they're just pale yellow olive pythons. Um, you know, there's there's so much depth to the color palette of, of scrub pythons, and uh, you know, no no two really look alike, um, especially within the within the barnex. Um, I mean. I could keep going, but to me, they're just everything that I love about pythons wrapped into one animal is, is what a scrub python is. And, you know, to me, they're, they're my favorite animals in the entire world. I I could never see myself not keeping them. Nice. So yeah, Lucas mentioned that I wanted to talk about some of the other species that you've gotten to work with over the years. 
which I mean, at this point, it's what haven't you worked with more in the <laughs> reptile side of well, things? Well, quite a lot. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, it, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, any of the dream monitor species, any of the dream snake species, you've you've been there, done that. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess since you said you're in the rattlesnake room right now, like, yes, uh, what are some of your favorite hots you've gotten to work with over the years? Um, I'm as far as actual hands-on work with them, I'm I'm still relatively new. Um, just a few years in, I, you know, I've been around them since when I started that that job when I was 13. Um, as far as my collection here, uh, my favorites would be like my Mangshan vipers, my uh, Ethiopian mountain viper. Um, uh, I mean, <clears throat> the montane rattlesnakes are, are really my obsession. Um, you know, all the different localities of clobber I have gotten to keep. They're just, they're what, incredible. What, what rattlesnakes did you say? Uh, just all like the, the montane species that the ones that are from like the Southwest, you know, like where I am. And then in New Mexico, um, you know, they're all relatively small. They come from elevations that are typically 3000, 8,000 feet. Um, they come from these kind of cooler climates where, um, you know, you'll find a rattlesnake, you can temp gun the ground in the winter and it's 45 degrees. Um, you know, it's a climate that you don't necessarily think of as being suitable for reptiles yet these they thrive i mean they're they're some of the most beautiful snakes if not animals in the entire world um the ridge nose rattlesnake complex the willard eye is potentially if i had to pick one complex within rattlesnakes i would say those are my favorite um they're just, do, do the midget faded fall under that montane that sounds politically um, incorrect that's <laughs> just what saying. they're called it <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, did the, those fall under Montane or no? Um, they would be like just sub-Montane. Um, you know, uh, the thing is, they all, they all, like from a captivity standpoint, can live in, this, in a similar climate. Um, okay. I don't know quite as much about those compared to like the ones that I keep, but um, I don't believe they're quite as high elevation. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that would make sense. But, uh, but even like, you know, blacktail rattlesnakes, you know, I keep a, a few different localities of them. You can find them fairly low, you know, 2,500. But then you, in Arizona, there's some that are like 7,000 feet up. Um, so, you know, it, it's all kind of that montane is kind of a, a blanket term. But uh, the lancehead rattlesnakes, I'm actually looking at one right now. Um, they're another one that's just absolutely fascinating. They take like, a, a Russell's Viper and a Bothrops and, you know, like put them into one, they have like cool spider web pattern on them. They're just, they're incredible. I, you know, I could probably talk about these for about as long as I could talk about scrub pythons. Um, I've really, uh, I've, I've found a huge passion with these. And what's awesome for me is that phys like physically, they're about the opposite of scrub pythons. There are these tiny little rattlesnakes that, uh, you know they're they're fast they're um you know they they just they act completely differently their care is completely different they're they're you know they're very small compared to obviously you know scrub pythons being larger um the one thing that i love about these is i can go find them in the wild you know in my backyard essentially um uh, and being able to see a species in the wild that i keep has been 
you know, has been transformative as far as understanding their care. Um, you know, camping in the mountains where a snake that literally is three feet away from me, its ancestors came from, um, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and freezing my ass off because I didn't expect New Mexico to be so cold. <laughs> you know, it, it really, it really puts everything in perspective. Like, man, these tiny little snakes that I keep, they, they do it like it's nothing. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I'm here in Salt Lake and then even, even Southern Utah, I'm amazed that the snakes are able to endure the winters that we have here. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So to be able to go observe them in the wild, you know, learn about what times a day they're active in these areas, how, you know, where do we find them actually finding them and like, okay, this is how they are in the wild. I can, I can replicate this in a cage. Um, you know, that's, that's something that one day I'd love to do with the scrub pythons, but I'm very fortunate to be able to do with the rattlesnakes, you know, as frequently as a few times a year. Yeah. I think they're, it's, it's a, like, I don't know. It just, it hits the dopamine and serotonin different in your brain when you're able to experience that, see that, and you're keeping them and you're plugging and playing with husbandry indoors and trying to keep them like that. Um, you know, it's a dream of mine to be able to go to Indonesia and, you know, or, or to the areas of the snakes that I keep and, you know, take a temp gun and be able to do all that. But that that's a that's a pipe dream right now. Um, you know, one day yeah. it'll happen, but not anytime soon. But yeah, I think that that's awesome that you can go outside, see the species that you're keeping and, and be able to study that. I mean, it's like the inner child in us, right? Like we all go and we catch snakes outside yeah. when we're kids and you know, but, but now you're an adult and, and you, you still get to do that, but like, you're also getting to keep them and, and try to propagate and, and breed and understand them. And it's like, it's like yeah. being a kid, but you're an adult and you know more. So it's cooler. <laughs> yep. And, and just being out there, you know, in this, some of the most beautiful terrain in the world, no cell service, you know, you don't know what the hell's going on at home. You just, you're not, I'm not listening to music. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm there with nature. Uh, the, the reset button is just, it's, it's really incredible. And, you know, especially in the digital concrete jungle world of today, it, uh, it really is amazing what, you know, I, I feel great for, for long afterward. Um, and if, you know, like right now I've, I've, you know, I can see the mountains and I haven't been to them yet because I've been so busy moving it. Like it's kind of, it's hurting my, it's hurting my soul a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel you there. My wife and I like to get away into the mountains and vacation and things like that. And when it, you know, too long to that, it, it, it hurts. Um, now I gotta, I gotta take us off of the rattlesnake conversation. I gotta ask you, what's your favorite species of monitors that you've worked with? Uh, uh croc monitors. Yeah. Okay. No, without, yeah. without a doubt. I was going to, besides croc yeah. monitors or monitors, it's tree monitors, right? The laces are a close second for me. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Laces are. I've always been partial to the larger monitors. I, I I like the tree monitors. Um, I you know I've, I've worked with all of them except for the, the too skittish. Uh, yeah. Um, I just they they're not they're not like for me as far as a monitor goes. You know, when I was first working at my old job back outside of Chicago, we had water monitors, big black throats, Komodo at the end. I didn't get to work with the Komodo, but experienced the Komodo. And like, that's what I like with, about monitor lizards. 
the I like the big like dude, prehistoric the, aspect of them. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. They're just yeah. to me less flighty and less like very high strung. And I, I got to yeah. I got to go to the um, Reptilandia for for Texas Carpet Fest and and yeah. got to scratch the head of a Komodo and literally I like it was everything that I've like I, I didn't yeah. even expect to be able to do that when I got there and it was. Like yep. a, a dream, like a dream that like I never knew I had. But like <laughs> when I when I did it, I was like, "This is the best day of my life." Yeah, komodos are next level. I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to interact with komodos as well, and uh, they they really they're all that. They're all that. Um, you know, they're nothing. There's nothing like a komodo dragon. Uh, this the closest you can get is a croc monitor. But to me, croc monitors are almost like the the scrub python of the of the monitors. Um, they're, yeah, they're really cool, but can also kill you in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just that they're they're big. They're not quite the biggest, but they're that are arboreal nature. Um, you know, they're. I, you, you could argue that croc monitors are the most intelligent of the monitors above the komodo. Could, even could could you um, imagine being out in the wild and looking up twenty five feet and seeing this massive monitor above you? Like that, that's oh, a croc monitor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, it probably saw you 200 feet ago and is even further up in the tree now. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that would be, that would be insane. But yeah, I, I, I love croc monitors. I'll, I'll certainly have them again someday. Um, they're just the, what, 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 what's going on up, up in their heads is just, it's, it's not the same for, for other monitors. It really, it's, it's different. Um, they're just they, they know how capable they are and they are they're every bit as capable as as you think they are um you know i'm very fortunate to work with quite a few and no, no incidents but uh we've all seen the incidents and yeah. oh my god are those lovely. that makes any snake look like a freaking puppy dog you know it make, I, makes I, any I, bite I from any animal look atta- like attainable yeah, and i mean reasonable i mean People i mean, I mean I, I learned actually recently that I think it was on our last, you know, the last species spotlight that we did with uh, a tree monitors, but I learned that every monitor species has some form of venom. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's pretty freaking insane that not only do you have to deal with jagged ass teeth from a croc, but then you also have to deal with the massive infection and effects of their saliva that could potentially kill you. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's something to think about, you know. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. It's uh, things to consider. You, can't, you know, it's easy to put it out of your mind, but it's it's still very much there, no matter how much you want to deny it. With, <laughs> right. Uh, with the uh, right. As yeah, much like as some like of my worst trust it. Mind, yeah, I was gonna say, as much as you might trust it, as much as you've had great interactions, it's I guarantee you, it's probably still a little faint thought in the back of the mind, like mm. this, this thing yeah. could do some damage. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, and you know, get get bit by even a tree monitor. You're never worried about getting tapped by a snake again. I mean, I, I've been, I, I really haven't. For how many scrub pythons I have, I've I've taken very very few bites ever. Uh, you know, I maybe maybe get one or two a year. Um, and the biggest one I've been bitten by was was a ten footer, bit me on the back of my calf. It, not even remotely close to a green tree monitor bite. Like there, there you go, Nathan. 
No, I mean, and not that the green tree monitor was like the end of the world, but it hurt far more than the scrub, the ten foot scrub python. Um, but so. but the the tree monitors aren't aren't very keen to use their mouth, are they? Like they're they're not very nippy in the first place. No, I I, I had it coming. Nathan, Nathan, I, I, Nathan's hoping. No, He's like no, wait, 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 Lucas, hear me out. He's like, please save me here. Yeah, well, I, I will say we were doing a video and uh, I, I the saw the video when game. you got bit. Well, there you go. So it, it, I got bit for a reason, and uh, that's typically not how I like to. Wait, hold on! Not honest. everyone has seen this video. What happened? Yeah. Oh, it was uh, it was quite a long time ago. Uh, Forrest and I were pulling the, the green tree monitors out of a cage for a uh, for Brian Barcheck, and um, we had like a bunch of people there for like a pre Tinley barbecue and. I, we went in and just grabbed the animals and I, I grabbed the male and I, I kind of got him like closer to the, to the hips and just turned around and just grabbed my hand and sat there for a minute. And they, everyone laughed at me and, you know, it was cool. So, um, it, it was cool. But yeah. So Only things, to, things to not do with monitors, just forcefully grab them. And if you're going to grab them, grab them behind the head or with gloves <laughs> on. That right. would be my suggestion. Right, don't don't so, be a talon coming from the top and grabbing their midsection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but but I, I will say I've been lucky with tricolor monitors, croc monitors. You know the bigger species, laces. I've I've never had a bite, so it's it's very doable. And uh, especially once you can get like a relationship with an animal with with feeding. I was never big on socializing, mostly because I just didn't really have the time. Um, but they know you as the food guy. They don't want to mess up the food guy unless the food guy backs them into a corner or, you know, that's not really something that, that animal cares to do. So, uh, you know, if you can have a good relationship with the animal when it comes to feeding, uh, chances are you're going to have a pretty good, you know, a good experience keeping that monitor. You know, I feel like I'm the same. Like if you keep me fed, I'm happy. That's all of us. <laughs> so moving out of the the reptiles, just kind of wrapping up here. Um, so my my last name's Katz. My my dad's name is Bob Katz. I know you've worked with <laughs> some in the past, as well as a couple other cat species like lynx, I believe. Uh, how was that? Was, what yeah. what was that like? Oh man. Uh, as different from what we do as, as you can. Um, yeah, back um, yeah. at the Wildlife Discovery Center, I was able to form a pretty close relationship with the bobcat there. And uh, I mean, it's something I'd love to do again. <clears throat> you, you can't travel. You can't have a sick day. You, 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 that is your special needs child. Um, okay. you know, you're, that, that's your, that's your part-time job. Um, you know the it's like the reward of that is you have this incredible experience of having a basically a friendship with this feline that's natural instinct is to kill you and is very capable of killing you at any moment they know where the jugular is they can jump oh, yeah. you know any of these cat species they can be on your neck before you know it um you just you can hope they don't want to kill you they want you around instead of want you not around yeah. um but uh, with that said, that that relationship 
you're not getting that with a dog. You're not getting like that's that's something that only comes with an animal like a bobcat or a serval or you yeah, know. like an apex predator feline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and you know, it's not like the scrub pythons, but that confidence that that animal has is just like it's it's palpable. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough on, you know, on individual occasions to interact with some other big cats, uh, a couple of servals, uh, a couple of mountain lions, a couple of tigers. Uh, and it's just, when you go up to like the tiger level, you're like, Oh, I don't know if this is for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could see lions, that for yeah, sure. Oh, mountain lions were, were incredible. Um, some lines but, need to uh, be drawn. Mountain, mountain lions are pretty damn awesome. I, I got the opportunity when I lived in Florida, uh, or, um, well, I guess, no, not the same thing. I'm thinking of Florida panthers, but I uh, was able to see one in the wild uh, when I was, like, probably yeah. nine years old when I was. Oh, that's what I'm scared of most here in Utah. What, Florida panthers? No, no, I'm sorry. Mountain lions. Mountain lions. Sorry. Lions. Yeah. Actually, uh, sorry about it. A little over a year ago, uh, we were uh, road cruising in the Chiricahuas and uh, <clears throat> didn't see anything that night. And on the way back, we saw a baby mountain lion crossing the street with a snake in its mouth. Oh, <laughs> Very awesome. brief. It just ran across. In front of us. It was it was bobcat size, but with a long tail. It's like the only thing that can be out here is a mountain lion. And there was most certainly a snake in this thing's mouth. So that's pretty. That funny. was. That was a special experience. I haven't seen any big ones. But, uh, my last trip out here when we were camping, we found a fresh print about 50 feet from the campsite one morning. So that was pretty cool. Um, but That's uh, one no, way to, no to describe it, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So, which is weird. There wasn't a, there wasn't a path in it. It was just one. So it must huh. have kind of come down and been like, now nah, I'm going back. So a Alien cat. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean we are, we're in we're in alien territory out here so um you never know but yeah the, the big cats they're they're I, i'd love to do something again one day i just i know that where i am and aspirations i have for travel and whatnot just it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't work you need to be you know you need to raise that animal from a from a baby and interact with it on a on a daily basis and it's it's you know certain people can do that, but if you can't do that, don't do it. Don't <laughs> get in bad. Don't get in bad. So yeah, and now we're making Tiger King part two, and you're the star. Look at you. <laughs> so I love that. Um, man, uh, Nathan, you got any other species you want to highlight? No, no. I mean, I kind of hit everything that I wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah, no intentions of owning big cats ever. Just uh, know you you had some fun experiences. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, Stephen, we appreciate you coming on tonight, spending your time with Absolutely. us. Uh, yeah, you know, going, going over the hurdles, switching rooms and, and doing all the fun stuff to make this work out. But work. I think it's uh, pretty successful. So, yeah, no, I, I agree as well. I mean, video quality is not there, but the audio, I think we're going to be able to get a great episode from this. And uh, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners, where can they find you on social media if, if you want to share that? Yeah, I mean, just right now, Instagram and Facebook. It's uh, Scrub Shepherd on Instagram and just Stephen Cush on Facebook. Um, you know, 
I, uh, I've been pretty absent from social media for about a year or so, but I, I plan on kind of slowly getting a little more involved. Yeah, I mean, it's it has its, it has its pluses, but the negatives are you don't sell as many snakes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, anyone, if anyone has questions about scrub pythons or really anything we talked about here, you know, shoot me a message and I'm more than happy to talk about anything. Yeah, appreciate it. Having you on, Stephen, let us know if, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd love to, to down the road, have you back on again. And uh, I mean, I, I know at the very least, um, at some point, I'll be having a, a scrub my collection. So we'll be in touch. Sounds like a plan to me. All right, Stephen, have a good one. Thanks again, man. All right. Thank you, guys. Good night. Good night. Nathan, don't forget it's us here. Yep. All right. Um, dude extremely exciting episode that we got to to do um i've never been more hyped to own a a species that i've recently more like learned more about and and the more i now that i got the green tree pythons and um i have found this desire to want to branch out you know when when i started breeding retics three four years ago um I was pretty set on sticking with them and that being the niche. And then now the green tree pythons. And now I, I find myself uh, wanting to keep a little bit of everything. You find yourself experiencing the Lucas syndrome. Yeah. No, just a little bit of everything. I don't want a lot of bit of a little, I want just a little bit of a lot, a lot. of bit of everything. Right. Exactly. Um, like I'll be getting some peacock monitors down the road from VivTech and, uh, so make sure you don't get a divorce anytime soon. That's... No, as long as it stays in the garage, we're good. <laughs> as long as it stays in the garage. Hey, I've seen I've seen that garage, and you're running out of space, my we're, friend. We're we're moving things out. We're making some room. I gotta get rid of the metal rack in the back. But anyways, um, no this this was a fun one. I'm I'm super excited for everyone to hear it. I actually. Uh, on my way down to Mesquite, Nevada, get to stop in uh, St. George, get to hang out with my buddy Aspen Mahan, and uh, get to hang out with his uh, scrub pythons a little oh, bit, his uh, his tree monitors. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Dude, excited. Dude, that, that's to... heaven right there, scrub yeah, and tree our, monitors. Yeah, our last our last two species spotlight. I, I get to experience it all, so awesome. it'll be fun. All right. Appreciate all of you for listening. Again, if you guys want to hang out, get some backseat access on some information and join the absolute best, and I'm saying best, Retic Patreon out there, go ahead and join the Retic Lounge. It's only $5 a month for our lowest tier. That gives you access to our Discord and just about access to mostly everything right now that we're doing. We're, we're trying to provide some more content that we're going to be doing soon, but come hanging out. Uh, it's 5 bucks a month, but... Um, yeah. You got anything else, Nathan? Nope. That's it. Have a good night. We'll see you next week. All right. See you, everyone.